please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is Matthew 13, verse 24 to 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good evening. I'm Tyler Johnson I'm here with you guys today to look at Matthew chapter 13. If you need a Bible, raise your hand high and someone will walk down the aisles. And if you're raising your hand high enough and they see you, they will get you a Bible. I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Church and I get the opportunity to kind of have the bird's eye view of all that God is doing in redemption and through redemption. The first Sunday of every month at all the redemption congregations, we title Outward Focus Sunday, which means we bring to you guys a, something we are doing externally out, or that affects all of our work outside of our four walls as a church that you all contribute to through the faithfulness of your giving and maybe your participation. This month's highlight is the Missional Training Center. The Missional Training Center has been in development for some years, but it's really blossoming and becoming multiple things. One of those things is the Surge Network. There's 75 to 80 churches that on a monthly basis are actively involved in partnership, kind of trying to create a city church mentality throughout the city of Phoenix. And then there's an element of that as well called the Surge School. It's a one-year training school. This next week will graduate uh, just over 20 churches participating, about 200 participants that are going through a lay leadership development program. By lay, what I mean by that is these people are not being paid to do vocational ministry. They're working in many different areas. Some of them are students, some doctors, some architects, some working for FedEx and whatever that might be. And we're trying to equip and prepare them to be God's people, to be salt and light in their areas. We've also just developed a theological education program the last two years that's master's level theological education that even has the route unto PhDs. So this very much is a leadership development system that you all are contributing to that redemption's been an enormous part of. So on that, we say thank you to you guys and for you to be praying with us as the Missional Training Center develops. So pray with me as we get into Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24, if you're turning there. Father, we come before you uh, tonight asking you to speak to us and to speak to us through a passage that's definitely provocative and at many times wouldn't sit totally well with all of us, and yet we ask that you would speak. God, I don't know the issues of everybody that sits in this room. There are people who walked in tonight rejoicing, and with them, we want to rejoice. There are people who walked in tonight weeping, and with them, we want to weep. 
But God, there's all kinds of questions that you know I cannot answer directly, and yet your word is living and active, and it will speak directly to the hearts of each one of us. God, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear, as you tell us at the end of this parable, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Father, we acknowledge we will not hear unless you enable us, allow us, work through all of our junk and sin that we might hear your word aright. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. How many of you guys like music? Participate with me a little bit. How many of you like music? The first hour I asked, how many of you like poetry? And there were like four hands that raised. And I thought to myself, well, you're liars because many people like music that lyrics are put to and those lyricists, when they're good, very much are poets. They're poetic. And the best songwriting brings forth imagery. Since we're just coming off of Easter, I wanted to share with you a song that very much has to do with Easter, because Easter is about the resurrection of Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that the resurrection of Christ proves all human beings too will be resurrected. All human beings will be resurrected. Some resurrected unto the judgment and put into darkness. Some resurrected to the judgment and placed in the light. This is a song about that written by one of my favorite songwriters and it's called Reckoning Day. He says this, the lions in the street bend their heads for the reckoning day because the interstate's giving up her dead for the reckoning day. Would you come alive, everybody? Would you come alive, everyone? Get up out of bed for the sound of the song unsung. Bury all your guns in the sand because the temperature's changed. In the bloodshot eye of the sun stains the bones of the slain. Would you come alive, everybody? Would you come alive, everyone? Get up out of bed for the sound of the song unsung. The hour's going to take you apart on the reckoning day. If the property lines of your hearts are drawn in the clay, would you come alive, everybody? Would you come alive, everyone? Get up out of bed for the sound of the song unsung. Pictures speak a thousand words. An image on a television screen speaks louder than the thousand words of the commentator. A picture on a website speaks louder than a thousand words that could be penned underneath it. A metaphor is more than an illustration. I'm sitting up here to preach to you tonight, and every time I prepare a message, I'll prepare a message and I'll say, what are the statements that I want to make? When I make one of those statements, I'll then say, how are you going to explain that statement? And then I'll say, how are you going to illustrate it? How are you argue it? How are you going to apply it? But there's that illustrated in the midst of this. And the illustration, when I'm seeking to put forth an illustration, it really is just a delivery mechanism. T.W. Manson says this, for many theologians and many preachers, the illustration is just the sugar coating on the theological pill. You know when you take those pills and they coat them with sugar so they taste a little better and kids' vitamins are like this, they're just caked with sugar because, what do you know about kids? A spoonful of sugar, what? Makes the medicine go down, right? We can all start dancing up here to Mary Poppins. 
But that's the way illustrations are. They're a delivery mechanism. They're the sugar coating on a theological pill. It's a delivery mechanism. Like if you're a gun person, which I'm not, you shoot and there's a casing and then there's the shell. All the casing does is direct the shell unto the target, but then the casing gets dispersed of. An illustration is not what a parable is. We're in this series called Pictures of the Kingdom, looking at the parables that come out of Matthew chapter 13, parables of the kingdom. And a parable is more than an illustration because it's not just a delivery mechanism. A parable literally is Jesus building a house and inviting us into that house to view the world from those, that place, from that house, looking out of those windows. It's an invitation to see the world a certain way. It's an invitation to you and I as the readers or the listeners that we are invited to take up residence there. And this parable brings forth a human predicament that if we sit and we take up Christ's invitation to enter into this house, this will state a reality for us that will cause a substantial problem, or better said, it will cause us to recognize a substantial problem. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24, is the parable of the weeds, or you may know it, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we're going to look at the meaning of this parable under the three headings dealing with the three primary characters. And we're going to look at these three headings, God's permission the wicked's removal, and the righteous's reward. God's permission, the wicked's removal, and the righteous one's reward. So let's get at this. God permits the righteous and the wicked to coexist in the world. God permits the righteous and the wicked to coexist in the world. There is righteousness and there is wickedness in the world. And in turn, there are righteous ones and unrighteous ones, the ones the Bible would call the wicked. And God is patiently allowing righteousness and wickedness to grow up at the very same time in our world. He's allowing the righteous ones and he's allowing the wicked ones to grow up and to stay in his world. He's permitting them to stay there until the judgment day or until the reckoning day. Look at verse 24 of Matthew 13. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man. Now what's interesting about this parable is if you go over to verse 36, he explains this parable. So I'm going to take the explanations from 36 through 43 and impose them directly into this parable so you know what Jesus was saying because he tells us this is what he's saying. So he puts a parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man. He says this man is the son of man, which the scriptures say the son of man is none other than Jesus himself compared to a man who sowed good seed. The good seed are the sons of God, Jesus tells us later, in his field. So it was a man who sowed the sons of God into his field. The field is spoken of as the world. So this is God, who is the creator of the world, sowing sons of God into the world. 
But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, who's the devil, came and sowed weeds, who are sons of the devil, among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, which is the judgment. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So let's make some evaluation of this. Here's the first thing we need to understand. The world in which we live in is God's world. He pictures it as his field. God is the creator of everything, the things that we see and the things that we cannot see. Everything he is the maker of. He's not only the creator, but he's the sustainer. The Bible says that God upholds the universe by his powerful word. He upholds the universe and all that he created by his powerful word. word. So he's upholding the earth by the word of his power. He's upholding a giraffe's body by the word of his power. He's upholding your lungs and the breath that you breathe by his word. He is active in the everyday affairs, literally in the microseconds of our existence right now and of this building. He is upholding. This is God's world. If you grew up in the church from the time you were young, to now, you would have sung a hymn that says, this is my father's world. And if you look at the language of that, that means this world is his possession. And this was a world that God created, and he said, it's good. Then he mailed male and female, and he said, it's very good. But we live in a world that doesn't always feel very good. Why is that? Well, Genesis chapter 3 says there was an invader, the enemy The devil, the Bible calls him, who invades and preys upon the sons of God, Adam and Eve, and gets them to question and in turn disbelieve and rebel against God's good word. There is an enemy. This is exactly what this parable says, that all of a sudden now there are weeds amongst the wheat in God's field. How did it happen? And he says, an enemy did that. Now, what's amazing about the image that Jesus portrays in this parable is the word he uses for the weeds is a word stated dernel. And dernel were weeds that when they grew, when they were very young, it looked just like wheat. So you couldn't even distinguish the wheat from the weeds. But the problem was the weeds would wrap around the good crop and kill them. And so there were people who knew they could bring economic turmoil upon somebody else's field by going out and sowing weeds amongst the wheat. This is why there was a Roman law against sowing weeds in somebody else's field. It was their bioterrorism. 
it was the ancient world's bioterrorism. That there was, if there was a bioterrorist attack, you want to bring down the economy of the United States, see something like that happen. They knew this had catastrophic effects. The crazy part about it is you couldn't tell, and the crazier part about it is God says, when his servants say, should we go up and gather together all of the weeds? And they're thinking, to protect the wheat? He says, no. Because if you do, you're going to create a greater catastrophe than you would if you just would be patient. Here's the thing you have to understand about the enemy. The enemy is a terrorist. He is an invader. The devil is not a creator. He is not creative. He's a duplicator and he's a distorter. The devil is not a creator and he's not creative. He's a devastator and a destroyer. He's the invader into God's world. And he goes after seeking to terrorize God's good world by going after God's good word. The enemy will constantly try to terrorize God's good world, which includes you and I, by challenging God's good word. So at that moment that Adam and Eve begin to believe the lies of the devastator and the destroyer, hell is unleashed upon the world. There is a force that goes out into all the world that affects all of the world. It's now under the dominion of sin. Death is now in the world because they believe the lies of the evil one. They believe the lies of the terrorist and of the invader. So now we live in a world where there is both good and evil all the time. This is what the world feels like, doesn't it? Regardless of how you sit here tonight, whether you're a believer or whether you're an unbeliever, you can testify to this fact. There are moments in your life that feel heavenly, great, and there's moments in your life that feel hellish, like death. And it's true all the time. There's this myth in our world that life is like there are peaks and there are valleys. The reality is there's never a point in your life that's all good, and the reality is there's never a point in your life that's all bad. It's way more like railroad tracks. You're on the good and the bad all the time, more than, hey, I'm in a mountaintop, and then I'm in a valley. Now, there are certainly points in your life that have more bad in them than other times in your life and times in your life that have more bad, but it's never all good and it's never all bad. MC Hammer lied, right? It's never all good. So now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God permits this to happen? What does it mean, in fact, that sometimes good and evil specifically in the hearts of human beings, is indistinguishable. That if we seek to go out and be the ones who root up all of the bad, we may, in fact, do more harm than we do good. What does it mean that God says, wait? What does it mean that God permits this to go on? This is one of the fundamental critiques of the Christian faith. So you say, that God's the creator of the world and that he's sovereign, he's in control of everything. You say that there is an all-powerful God who is all good and yet this happens? 
This all-powerful good God enables sexual abuse to happen. He enables physical abuse to happen and verbal abuse to happen. This all-powerful good God's the one who allows people to go into malls and shoot little kids. This good and all-powerful God is the one who enabled my family to break apart. Is the one who allows my Bosch to throw forth words that are like daggers to my soul. This is that God. He just permits it to go on. Allows it to grow up together. And people at that point go, that's where I'm drawing the line. I can't buy a God like that. Because we want a God who would intervene immediately. Act now and stop that stuff. Stop that garbage. Stop it now if you have the power to do it, right? But let me ask you something. Would people really like it if God were to rule the world that directly and that immediately? Think about that for a minute. Would we really want that? Do we really want God to rule the world that directly and that immediately? Because if he did, he'd have to go over, go after every other evil impulse, correct? He'd have to intervene right now, that directly, on every evil impulse. Even every evil impulse inside our and your very own hearts, correct? How could we say, God, go after that, but don't go after this? Oh, well, wait a minute, Tyler. We're talking about genocide here. Genocide's a little different than me saying something bad to a friend of mine or something bad to my family member or, you know, just stealing a little something at work. It's different than that. But Jesus takes exception to that. He says, no, in fact, it isn't different at all. You've heard it said, Jesus says, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've looked upon a man or woman lustfully, you've committed adultery already. That all of these things come out of the heart of men and women. For out of the heart of men and women come murder, theft, adultery. All of the vile things in the world that we simultaneously say we hate reside in our hearts. You have heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother or sister in your heart, you've committed murder already. I say to you, if you've said, you fool, to somebody, you're worthy of the condemnation of hell. For you've murdered in your heart. So do we really want a God who acts that directly and that immediately? Are we prepared to pay that price? Well, then we have to ask, then why does God permit it? Why does he wait? And the Bible says that it's God's long-suffering with the world. His patience because of his Love. Because God desires all those whom he made in his image to repent, to turn away from wickedness and vile practices, and to return to him. God in his patience and in his long-suffering permits these things to happen with a promise of a future reality that it will be dealt with. With a promise that in the future this will happen. So now he tells us when we see evil in the world and we say, God, should we go root it out? Should we be the ones to go do that? He says, no, because in so doing, you may create even more harm. 
So what then should we do? And here's what Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now there is no way at that moment, there aren't many people in this room going, whoa, wait a minute, love your neighbor as yourself. In the face of this radical opposition to me, to my family, to whatever this is, you're saying Jesus is being patient with that because he longs to see more people repent and come to him and experience what true human life is. And the response of me now is to patiently wait along with him and love in spite of that. Well, what if this person is actively opposed to me? What if they're my enemy? Well, we're about to see in the book of Romans exactly what he says about that. You're to love your enemy as you love yourself. If you see them thirsty, give them something to drink. If you see them hungry, feed them. We are called to mimic God in his long suffering. Now you may be sitting there going, I don't, this doesn't really sit well with me. You may say, this doesn't sit well with me at all. What is God doing? And the word that the Bible uses for God is long suffering. And you may think, does God even care? Okay, he suffers long. That means all the things that create horror and anguish in your life He is suffering with you in the midst of. He's suffering with you in the midst of, patiently waiting for everything to be made beautiful in its time. You cannot look at a God and go, he doesn't care about it when he so loved the world that he got into it, actively got into it on our behalf. So what does this mean for us? Here's one thing that it means, this idea that evil and good is living right amongst us and God's permitting it to grow up around us. God's allowing wicked ones and righteous ones to be right there. One thing as it does is it should set our expectations because many of us in this room get mad at life because we have false expectations, right? We get mad at life because we think life is to deliver to me a perpetual season of leisure and comfort. But does life ever deliver that? Regardless, again, of what you believe in this room, life never delivers a perpetual, ongoing season of comfort. So we need to set our expectations correct. We're in the good and bad all the time. It's like this. If somebody right now that's sitting out there raised their arm up right next to you in the room, and they weren't wearing sleeves long enough, right? And the hair maybe was coming out of their sleeve, so it'd be a man, but we're in Tempe, so it might be a woman too, but (laughs) this person's sitting next to you, and their armpits in their face, right in your face. You'd be sitting there going, is this person even a human being? Do they not realize what they're doing? Do they not realize that this is entirely, totally disgusting and inappropriate? Because your expectations are that wouldn't happen to you in church. But if you were on the subway in New York City tomorrow morning, There's hundreds of people on the subway with armpit hair stuck in their face, and they're not flinching, right? People are holding on, and they know they're holding on because if they don't hold on, they'll fall down, and nobody's flinching. Why? Because their expectations are such that I'm going to have an armpit in my face going to work. Let me tell you one way that will really help your life is if you set the expectation, I live in a world where heavenly things and hellish things happen all the time. 
that'll help you and you won't be surprised. Here's the other thing that this means is that we are to wait with patience. At the heart of the parable of the weeds and the wheat is this note of patience. God is patient, therefore we should be patient. And in our patience, we should love. There's a commentator that wrote a book on the parables called Stories with Intent. And he leaves us within that book with these very incisive words for our application and for our reflection. And the question that is burning in all of us is then, what do we do in the face of evil, right? He says this, questions about how we should respond to evil are spawned by this parable, but they're not directly addressed. Other texts in the Bible must be brought in for that discussion. But clearly, any idea of doing God's work, of judging or any thought that we will be the ones to obliterate evil are set aside by this parable. He says this, this parable clearly shows you you're not the judge. You're to wait on that. And if you think you or you and your buddies are going to obliterate evil, you're wrong. There's one judge and there's one who finally obliterates evil and it's God. He goes on, the biblical message always leaves us dealing with tension. And here's the tension, good and evil. We live in it. I hate it. This past weekend, I spoke at a conference, actually last week, and I had a guy come up to me afterwards in the midst of the biblical story, and what he was saying from personal experience is, I'm living in the tension of that. Though God's calling me to be that as a Christian, I'm not that. And I wanted to say, welcome to the party, man. Me either. You live in that tension. Though God wants the world and intends the world to be like this, it's not like this. And we live in that world. And that's what he says. It leaves us dealing with tension. He then goes on. We cannot be tolerant of evil. But the destruction of all evil is not our task. We must stop being evil ourselves. And we must stop evil from destroying And then he asks this question that we just need to sit with. He says, but how can we stop evil without becoming evil in the process? That may be a massive part of the Christian's question, the human question. How do we go forth, not allow evil to exist, knowing we cannot obliterate it, but standing in the face of it, loving, and try to stop evil and not become evil in the process? How do you deal with hurled words that are like daggers to your soul and not retaliate? How do you deal with being dealt with unjustly and not act in injustice yourself in return? How is it that we could experience horrific things done to us and not return by doing horrific things, because that's the wisdom of the world, is it not? You guys remember the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot? We all celebrate revenge, but then we live in a world that cycles in ungrace. You do this to me, you slit my child's throat, I slit yours. You bomb our country, we bomb yours. You say that to me, I say something worse to you. So how are we to live these lives of love that Jesus called us? The next two realities enable us to live these, and here's what they are. The wicked will be removed, 
and the righteous will be rewarded. The wicked will be removed and the righteous will be rewarded. The wicked will eventually be separated out, judged, and destroyed. The wicked will be removed. They are cast out of God's good world through judgment and destruction. Look at verse 36 through verse 42. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seeds, the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Verse 41, listen to this. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the first thing we got to realize in this. Judgment's real. According to Jesus, judgment is real. Now, I don't care who you are again in this room, regardless of your belief, if judgment is real, our skin should shiver at some level. And at some level, we don't like it. But judgment is real, Jesus says, and Jesus says whether we like it or not. Here's another recognition. Judgment and the harvest, which is the way he talks about it in this parable, is the casting out of all that is contrary or in opposition to God's good world and God's good word. It's the removal or casting out of it. Now, let me address for a moment a massive misunderstanding in the church. There is a belief in the church that the world is bad and that what's going to happen in the end is the removal of the righteous from a bad world. Okay, that's not what the Bible says or what this parable says. This parable says this is God's field. It's his world. And he's actually going to send his servants into the world and remove unrighteousness and wickedness from the world. That makes a massive difference in your understanding of how you go about your everyday life. If I walk around saying this is my father's world in which he rules and he owns and in which one day everything that's wrong about this world will be removed by the sovereign hand of God, that allows me to walk around if I'm his kid saying this is our turf. This is God's turf. God will not lose that which he made, which he called good. He will remove the wicked and the unrighteous from it. Verse 41 says, gathering everything that causes offense and everyone who acts wickedly. Hear this. The wicked will be removed and wickedness will be everything that causes offense, that's sin, and everyone who acts wickedly will be removed. Why? Because this is God's world. He is the king. And he is fully establishing his kingdom. This is not a home for wickedness or for the wicked. Now, back to this reality of our skin shivering and many of us in here not liking this. I get it. Okay, I get the fact that many of us don't like the judgment. But many of us don't like it because we've been raised in a privileged culture. And in a privileged country. There's a scholar named Miroslav Volv at Yale 
who's experienced in kind of the Bosnian um, challenges, the Bosnian-Serbian conflicts, some tremendously horrific things. And he says this. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence, think about nonviolence as a life of love, requires a belief in divine judgment, judge, in divine vengeance. So he's saying, my thesis that to live out a life of love requires a belief in divine vengeance. Now that's what I said. Here are two things that are going to help us live these radical lives of love that Christ called us to. The removal of the wicked, the rewarding of the righteous. He says, my thesis, this practice of love, requires a belief in divine vengeance. And it will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. Now, interesting, why the West? Probably because we've experienced a lot of privilege, a lot of comfort. Good, I'm not saying that's bad, but that may be why. He says, to the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis or conclusion, we should not retaliate since God himself is perfect, non-coercive love. He says, soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of such a thesis, that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one who watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of, when he says liberal, he means individualistic mind. Here's Miroslav Volv's point. The only way You can sit here and go, I don't believe in divine vengeance, and still say we should live a life of love towards other people. He's saying it's impossible. The only way we can say love your neighbor as yourself, even if it's your enemy, is if we believe that there is a day coming in which the wicked and wickedness will be removed, then we can with patience say we can wait. And in God's power, love even our enemies as we love ourselves. Now here's where this gets even thicker and deeper. If judgment is true and judgment resides even in the hearts of each one of us, how do we know when we stand before God in the judgment, in this separation, that we aren't the wicked? If we read verse 41, and it says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you're sitting in this room, and you aren't evaluating yourself, you're crazy. So we must have a moment here of self-evaluation. God's going to remove wickedness from the world in one of two ways either his active removal of the wicked in the final judgment and of wickedness, or the removal of it out of us now. How does the wickedness within us get removed now? This is what Israel faced head on, is God called them to be a people for the world who loved the world. 
But they had a problem. They kept failing because they kept butting up against the reality that the problem wasn't just out there, but the problem was in here. And so God's promise to Israel is that there was coming a day very soon in which he would take out of them a heart of stone, a heart that was bent on self, a heart that believed everything contrary to God's good word, and he would take out of that heart of stone and put into them a heart of flesh that beat for him and that beat in love for God and in love for neighbor. And that was the promise of the new covenant. How was he going to bring about the new covenant? But by sending himself, his very own son, into this world of horror, hell, and death to take all of the sin of the world upon himself in one place, God set it up that would all come straight upon Jesus, that all who have faith in him might be given new hearts, new life, might be restored to the way God intended you to be as a human being that would enable you and empower you through his Holy Spirit to love your neighbor as yourself, even if that neighbor is your enemy. That would enable you in the face of suffering and evil to be patient knowing there's a day coming. How is it that we can know that in this moment of final judgment, we are counted among the righteous? Now, if you've been here for some months and you've studied the book of Romans, you should know the answer to this. Or you don't listen, or Ricardo's a horrible preacher. Okay? Righteousness comes by faith. In faith alone, the one distinguishing mark of the true Christian church is faith. In faith alone, and that faith, Ephesians says, is the gift of God. So in the end, if we stand before God, the only rock we have to stand upon is Christ and faith in him. Faith in Jesus Christ unites us with God, gives us new hearts and new lives and new power to live this life. And then the promises that are given to the righteous only by grace, only through faith, and only in Christ, the rewards are unparalleled. The righteous will be gathered together, rewarded, and brought into God's presence. Look at the last verse, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Now that's they will shine like the sun, S-U-N. Now, this was given to Middle Eastern people, not Midwest people. Okay, Middle Eastern people experience the sun like we do in Arizona, right? If you're in the Midwest, it's like the sun. Oh, that's nice, like I'm a brick of ice. And when the sun comes out, this is a glorious thing. It's an amazing thing. It keeps me a little bit warm. But right now, we're going, the sun, and we think about our SRP bill. And we think about our face melting off two minutes when we get into our car, right? And we think about our hands being burned and our kids not being able to go out and play, about us not being able to go out and play. The sun has a power to it in Arizona. The righteous will shine like the sun. C.S. Lewis said, in our resurrected bodies after the resurrection, when God establishes us in new bodies that we will be people so glorious that the propensity, if we saw ourselves now, would be to fall down in worship. 
The promise of the kingdom fully realized is that we will reign with God himself. What all that means, I don't know, but the rewards are great. And if the rewards to the righteous come only by faith, then the one we exalt and sing about now is only Christ. The one we live for now is only Christ. All of our lives are all for him. And the only way we can live the lives of others-centered self-dying, self-sacrificing, neighborly love the way Jesus called us to love only is if we believe that there's a day coming in the future when God will remove all wickedness and all wicked doers and he will reward the righteous and we recognize that our righteousness only comes by faith in him. So who gets the glory? Not us because of our righteous deeds, but the one whom we get his righteousness by being brought into him by the grace that he's offered to us in his son. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and are amazed by your truth. God, I pray that we would see the beauty that you show us in your word, that we wouldn't be a people who are smarter and more intelligent than you, and in turn, we dehumanize ourselves and de-love our neighbors. God, let us look at the judgment and see the surprise of it and the glory of it that it will enable us to love in the here and now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is our moment now to reflect, to examine ourselves specifically as the scriptures say. Right now would be a very good time to do what Paul told the Corinthians, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And if any moment right now there's confusion about that, there's questioning about that, there's one place to run, to Christ and Christ alone whose arms are open wide.